I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. You can unlock the entire LRB archive for free for 24 hours by visiting lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Myth is a story that can be retold by anyone with infinite variation and still be recognisable as itself. The outline of surviving myth is re-recognised in the lives of each generation. It's an instrument by which people simplify, rationalise and retell social complexities. It's a means to haul the abstract, the global and the relative into the realm of the concrete, the local and the absolute. It's a way to lay claim to faith in certain values. If those who attempt to interpret the world do so only through the prism of professional thinkers and ignore the persistence of myth in everyday thought and speech, the interpretations will be deficient. This is the importance of the Robin Hood myth. It's the first and often the only political economic fable we learn. It's not a children's story, although it is childlike. It contains the three essential ingredients of grown-up narrative, love, death, and money, without being a love story, a tragedy, or a comedy. It doesn't tell of the founding of a people. It's not a fairy story or a religious myth. It has no monsters, gods, or wizards in it, only human beings. It's not a parable. In place of a moral, it has a plan of action. What does Robin Hood do? We all know. He takes from the rich to give to the poor. A change has come over Robin Hood. On the surface, he's the same. The notion of taking from the rich to give to the poor is as popular as ever. But in the deeper version of his legend, the behavior-shaping myth, he's become hard to recognize. The storytelling that makes up popular political discourse is crowded with tales of robbery. But the story has been cloven. I can no longer be sure that my Robin Hood is your Robin Hood, or that my rich and poor is your rich and poor, or who is taking and who is giving. The old Robin Hood, embodiment of the generous outlaw of Sherwood Forest, still bubbles up, as when the actor-director Sean Penn calls Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, head of the world's biggest supplier of banned narcotics, a Robin Hood-like figure who provided much-needed services in the Sinaloa Mountains. This is Robin Hood the noble robber in Eric Hobsbawm's characterization. 
In the final edition of his much-reworked book, Bandits, Hobsbawm bids farewell to the type. In, fully, in a fully capitalist society, he writes, the conditions in which social banditry on the old model can persist or revive are exceptional. They will remain exceptional, even when there is far more scope for brigandage than for centuries, in a millennium that begins with the weakening or even the disintegration of moderate, modern state power and the general availability of portable but highly lethal means of destruction to unofficial groups of armed men. In fact, to no one's surprise, in most developed countries, even in their most traditionalist rural areas, Robin Hood is by now extinct. Sinaloa State in Mexico, from where El Chapo carried on his business until his recent capture by the combined forces of the entertainment world and the Mexican Marines, is still fertile ground for belief in the existence of the noble robber. In a way, present-day Nottinghamshire or Missouri or Victoria, once homes to the mythical Robin Hood and the real Jesse James and Ned Kelly, no longer are. Still, if we move out from Hobbesbaum's focus on the social bandit as actual individual and consider the entire Robin Hood myth with all its characters and sequences, the ideal remains familiar in the outlaw-free world. The myth requires a great mass of heavily taxed poor people who work terribly hard for little reward. The profits of their labor and the taxes they pay go to support a small number of lazy, arrogant rich people who live in big houses, wallow in luxury, and have no need to work. Any attempt to resist, let alone change, this unjust system is crushed by the weight of a vast private-public bureaucracy, encompassing the police, the courts, the prison system, the civil service, large property owners and banks, all embodied in the ruthless figure of a bureaucrat-aristocrat, personification of the careerist capitalist elite, the sheriff of Nottingham. Two figures stand between the sheriff and the poor. One is the absent king. He carries a monarch's title, but exists only as the sign of an idea. He represents benign authority, order, and justice. The kinder, fairer authority that existed before he went away, naively leaving the sheriff in charge to govern in his name and pervert his wishes. The same authority he will restore when he returns. In the meantime, there is Robin Hood, the force who defies the system, who stands up for the little people, who levels the playing field. He takes from the rich to give to the poor. It is a plan. It always seemed to me to be a kind of crude socialist plan. Taking from the rich to give to the poor has been, is, and should be the way forward for an exploited majority against remote, unaccountable concentrations of extreme wealth and power. One word for it is redistribution. Robin Hood is a program of the left. Robin Hood is Jeremy Corbyn. He's Russell Brand. He's Hugo Chavez. So it used to seem. A change has come about. The wealthiest and most powerful in Europe, Australasia, and North America 
have turned the myth to their advantage. In this version of Robin Hood, the traditional poor, the unemployed, the disabled, refugees, have been put into the conceptual box where the rich used to be. It is they, the social category previously labelled poor, who are accused of living in big houses, wallowing in luxury and not needing to work, while those previously considered rich are redesignated as the ones who work terribly hard for fair reward or less, forced to support this new category of poor who are considered rich. In this version, the Sheriff of Nottingham runs a ruthless realm of plunder and political correctness, ransacking the homesteads of honest peasants for money to finance the conceptual rich, that is, the unemployed, the disabled, refugees, working-class single mothers, dodgers, scroungers, chavs, chiselers, and cheats. In this version of the myth, Robin Hood is a tax cutter and a handout denouncer. He's Jeremy Clarkson. He's Nigel Farage. He's Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. He's by your elbow in the pub, telling you he knows an immigrant who just waltz into the Social Security office and walked out with a cheque for £1,000. He's in the pages of the Daily Mail, fingering a work-shy good-for-nothing with 11 children, living in a luxury house on the public purse. He's sabotaging the Sheriff of Nottingham's wicked tax-gathering devices, speed cameras and parking meters. He's on talk radio, denouncing inheritance tax. He's winning elections. This is not a uniquely British phenomenon. The alternate version of the Robin Hood story is heard when left and right clash in Australia, Canada, and the United States. An early version was the welfare queen legend of America in the 1970s, popularized by Ronald Reagan. The welfare queen was a, a mythical woman, usually portrayed as black and swathed in expensive furs, who drove her Cadillac to the welfare office to pick up a dole from the government that amounted to $150,000 a year, tax-free. Today, the key signifier is the phrase hard-working people. With this expression, right-wing politicians embrace the entire spectrum of employed people with property, from a struggling small-time cafe owner with a bank loan to Britain's richest beneficiary of inherited wealth, the multi-billionaire Duke of Westminster, who does have a job looking after his money, and class them together as peasants, put upon smallholders clawing a living from the soil in the face of the sheriff's cruel tax raids. Here is the Conservative Chancellor, George Osborne. We choose aspiration. The bu this budget backs the self-employed, the small business owner, and the home buyer. We choose families. This budget helps hard-working people keep more of the money they have earned. His boss, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, criticizing Labour in Parliament this week. They met with a bunch of migrants in Calais. They said they could all come over to Britain. The only people they never stand up for are the British people and hard-working taxpayers. The former Conservative Prime Minister of Canada, Stephen Harper, in 2015. The opposition will say now, let's spend and spend and spend. But next year, we will use the fiscal room to do what we promised, cut taxes for hard-working Canadian families. The Liberal Treasurer of Australia, Scott Morrison. 
clearly there is not enough reward for effort. That's why some people find it more beneficial to stay on welfare benefits than work. The U.S. Republican Marco Rubio, who wants to be president, speaking at a debate in 2015. Under my plan, no business, big or small, will pay more than 25% flat rate on their business income. That is a dramatic tax decrease for hard-working people who run their own businesses. As The Economist magazine pointed out, whatever crumbs Rubio's tax plans might offer low earners, the great beneficiaries would be the mega-rich, a tax cut worth an eighth of their income to the most wealthy 1% of Americans. That's the way the hard-working people shtick operates. You can be a hedge fund manager with a 10-figure salary, You can be a near full-time party-goer living off the money your great-grandparents made who dabbles in property development. Once you would have been universally numbered among the rich. Now you are bracketed through the formula of hard-working people together with the oppressed of the earth. In characterizing hard-working people as the conceptual poor, no matter how technically rich they might be, Right-wing polemicists evoke a class of people who are not hard-working. Why are they not hard-working? We are invited to speculate. Clearly there is something unwholesome about them. Perhaps they are lazy. Perhaps they come from a poor country, attracted by the bounties and luxury houses the government offers foreigners. Perhaps it is because they belong to a trade union, an organization that exists, as George Osborne likes to explain, to stop people working hard by badgering them to go on strike. Perhaps it is because they are pretending to be ill or bred improvidently or failed to prepare for their retirement. Anyway, they don't work hard enough or didn't when they were younger. But instead of being punished for this, they are rewarded by the government with lavish benefits. They are idle, they are well-off, and they live from the hard work of others. Thus are those who would once have been universally numbered among the poor, transformed in the despised rich. In 2010, in the wake of the financial crisis, a campaign was launched in Britain to get the government to introduce something called the Robin Hood tax. The idea of the Robin Hood tax is, on the taking side, to discourage the reckless speed with which banks and funds shift vast, destabilizing amounts of money from place to place around the globe. And on the giving side, to raise money to combat poverty and climate change. All this to be achieved by leveling a tax on every financial transaction. The Robin Hood tax has been embraced by Jeremy Corbyn's economic spokesman, John McDonnell, and 11 European countries plan to introduce something like it, called the financial transaction tax. Britain will not be one of those countries while the Conservatives are in charge, shifting vast destabilising amounts of money from place to place around the globe is one of the areas where Britain is keen to help. The Robin Hood tax isn't a bad idea, introduced by enough wealthy countries and with enough pressure put on the tax havens they protect. It could be a forerunner to the far more radical global tax on capital proposed by the French economist Thomas Piketty as a way to ease the extremes of inequality built into the capitalist system. The idea goes back at least to John Maynard Keynes. 
But the fact modern supporters of the tax chose to name it after the legendary hero of Sherwood Forest is a marker of how popular thinking about taxation has changed. Because isn't all tax a Robin Hood tax? Isn't tax, to put it another way, the form in which the Robin Hood myth finally crystallized into reality? If communities in the Sinaloa Mountains really do rely on the philanthropy of the narco-baron El Chapo for much-needed services, as Sean Penn puts it, surely the reason is to be found in the flaws of Mexico's system of taxation and social spending. Maybe the solution to inequality and to austerity economics is not a Robin Hood tax. Maybe it's just tax. The entry level for national myth is high. It's not that the mythical hero must have some basis in historical fact. That might actually be an obstacle. The qualifying condition is that any individual be able to interrogate their own memory to assemble their own version of the myth. When I try to conjure Robin Hood in this way, without looking anything up, just from pre-existing fragments... I produce a figure who is no longer young, yet lean and agile, almost acrobatic. Sometimes he's scruffy, unshaven, morose, clad in leather and chain mail. At other times, oddly well-groomed, smiling, fey, in a tight-fitting pantomime costume of bright green and a jaunty hat with a feather. He goes on foot with a bow slung over his back, greets his compadres in a hearty manner, and is dogged by a stubborn sense of fairness. He has a girlfriend, Marion, but it's hard to shake off the sense that she's there as a kind of beard to offset uncertainty among the socially conservative peasantry over what Robin and the Merry Men get up to in the woods when they aren't out on the rob. There's an obese cleric, a fight with staves on a bridge over a stream, a scene where Robin is captured, and an episode where Robin, in disguise, wins a silver arrow from a competition hosted by his arch-enemy. All this revolves, however, around a single, eternal, core chapter. Here it is. We're in the forest. Shafts of sunlight fall through the canopy and strike the golden leaves on the forest floor. A column on horseback rides in wary silence between the trees. First comes a soldier in chain mail, then a haughty gentleman with his nose in the air, dressed in clothes that are at once ostentatious, expensive, and redolent of decadent fetishes. Then a cart carrying an iron-bound strongbox, guarded by more soldiers than the rear guard. A horse rears and whinnies. A feathered arrow is embedded, quivering in the bark of a tree, just in front of the rich man's arrogant nostrils. The soldiers draw their swords, but it's too late. Each finds himself with an outlaw's arrow pointing at his head. The rich man, who turns out to be the sheriff of Nottingham, becomes a sniveling coward, begging his attackers to take the money and spare his life. The strong box is taken and forced open. Silver coins spill out. The outlaws are about to fill their pockets, but Robin wards them off. This money is for the poor. However abstract the Robin Hood myth has become in political terms, to actually retell it 
is to embed the central plan of taking from the rich to give to the poor in the specifics of the era when it first emerged, somewhere between the First Crusade and the Black Death. That is, somewhere between the beginning of the 11th century and the middle of the 14th. In the context of high medieval England, the modern right-wing notion of taxation as being an oppressive burden on the great mass of people makes sense. The majority were peasants working the land. They were obliged to pay three kinds of tax. One, indirectly, through customs duties and debasement of the coinage, to the king to finance his wars. Another, to the church. And a third, the largest, to their feudal landlord. Most peasants were ensurfed, that is, bound to the lord in the place where they were born, and paid taxes in kind, in the form of compulsory labor in the lord's fields with the family having to surrender their best beast to their lord when the head of the household died. At the same time, they were subject to an intense system of local monopolies under the lord's control, obliged to pay to use the lord's mill to grind their corn, for instance, or the lord's ovens to break their bread, and to a complex web of prohibitions, fees, and fines payable to the lord for everything from having a child out of wedlock to killing the Lord's doves. This flow of money, labor, and goods from the slave poor to the land-holding rich brought nothing to the poor in return except a vague, often broken promise of protection from external violence and the intangible pledge of relief in heaven. The rich were not hard-working. They would have been insulted to be described as such. They conspicuously and self-righteously spent the taxes they received on themselves, on luxuries, on display, on the aristocratic pastimes of war, poetry, fashion, music, dancing, hunting, romance, and fornication. The medieval Robin Hood, then, was not taking from the rich to the gifts to the poor, so much as taking back from the rich to return to the poor, who would be doing all right if the rich hadn't been so greedy. It's this medieval notion of taxation as robbery from a hard-working peasantry to fund the lifestyle of idle hedonists that maps directly onto the version of the Robin Hood myth the world's conservative and right-wing populist parties want to promote. When George Osborne tweets with the hashtag hard-working people and declares, where is the fairness, we ask? For the shift worker, leaving home in the dark hours of the early morning, who looks up at the closed blinds of their next-door neighbour, sleeping off a life on benefits. He's positioning himself as Robin Hood. The welfare state and the unemployed, as the rapacious Anglo-Norman aristocracy of 13th century England, and all those who think they pay more in taxes than they get back, be they shift workers or billionaires, as the peasants who feed them. Thomas Frank describes a similar process in America. The conservative Renaissance rewrites history according to the political demands of the moment, generates thick smoke screens of deliberate bewilderment, grabs for itself the nobility of the common toiler, and projects onto its rivals the arrogance of the aristocrat. A socialist Robin Hood, one whom the myth does not provide, would tell the sheriff he doesn't want his money, but his power. He wouldn't be fobbed off with a box of silver coins. He would demand control of the system. 
Rather than destroying taxation, he would shift the burden from the poor to the rich and spend the revenue for the common good. But as Hobsbawm tells us, while the noble bandit may be generous and chivalrous, he makes a lousy socialist. Insofar as bandits have a program, it is the defense or restoration of the traditional order of things as it should be, which in traditional societies means as it is believed to have been in some real or mythical past. They right wrongs, they correct and avenge cases of injustice, and in doing so apply a more general criterion of just and fair relations between men in general, and especially between the rich and the poor, the strong and the weak. This is a modest aim, which leaves the rich to exploit the poor and the strong to oppress the weak. The Robin Hood myth may be copied over into political discourse, but the translation won't go in the opposite direction. The core Robin Hood scene of taking from the rich to give to the poor is cathartic rather than curative. The start of the great redistributive transformation, the moment when the medieval system of taxation began decisively to change into the modern system and the welfare state, only occurred when Robin Hood laid down his bow, came out of the forest, and took over the sheriff's office. In Britain, it's hard to fix exactly when this happened. On the face of it, some of the arrangement European society made for the disabled, the unemployed, widows and orphans in the late 16th and early 17th centuries were enlightened, the Elizabethan poor law, for instance, and did oblige the gentry to stump up to help the less fortunate. Yet the labouring classes themselves had no say and were still subject to the economic orthodoxy of the time, which held that paying labourers anything more than subsistence wages would ruin the country. The closer one looks at the poor laws of the Tudor era, the less they looked like the first signs of equality and the more like an attempt by the better off to suppress the dangerous habit the country's former serfs had acquired of moving from place to place in search of a better life. Robert Peel's introduction of Britain's first peacetime income tax in 1842, just under 3% on incomes over £150 a year, was, in retrospect, a breakthrough, if not one the protest movement of the era had demanded. It stung the rich a bit. But for Peel, trying to marry laissez-faire free market economics with traditional Tory paternalism, and for radical agitators, the tax was a technical and supposedly temporary detail that allowed the government to cancel onerous tariffs on essential goods, notably food. Income tax has been with us ever since. After the Napoleonic Wars, Britain's diverse contradictory, overlapping groups of agitators, the unemployed, starving Irish smallholders, excluded Catholics, the disenfranchised, exploited poor of the industrial cities, demanded that their rulers put right immediate grievances. They wanted an end to high duties on imported corn. They wanted cheap bread, but they also wanted the vote and education for their children. By the time the 20th century arrived, the successors to the constellation of idealists organizers, polemicists, and journalists who led the Chartists and the Anti-Corn Law League had moved on from the Robin Hood myth's focus on the contents of the strongbox and the futile hope for the return of that wise, just ruler, the absent king. 
They understood the silver coins were only a symbol of the power that was denied them, and that to achieve that power, they must become their own king. By 1908, when Britain, walking where Denmark and New Zealand had already trod, introduced a means-tested old-age pension, £13 a year for anyone over 70 who earned less than 10 shillings a week and wasn't a criminal, a lunatic, or a recent pauper, Robin Hood was vanishing into the system by achieving oneness with it. David Lloyd George, the Chancellor, funded the pensions by tweaking the tax rate paid by the 12,000 richest Britons. The changes, Lloyd George's biographer, Roy Hattersley, points out, were expressly designed to take from the rich in order to give to the poor. It was the moment, as Hattersley puts it, that taxes became the engine of social policy. Lloyd George said at the time, there are many in the country blessed by providence with great wealth, and if there are amongst them men who grudge out of their riches a fair contribution towards the less fortunate, then they are very shabby rich men. Never put a quote by Lloyd George into a lecture. It sounds too... uh, too stirring, doesn't it? Since the welfare state and progressive taxation began to replace the medieval state and predatory taxation, income tax and other taxes on wealth have been used for other purposes. Military spending, paying off government debt. Both Peel and Lloyd George, when they turned to income tax in their most famous budgets, had an eye on the country's past borrowings. As Thomas Piketty points out in his book, Capital in the 21st Century, the huge increase in income and wealth tax rates in industrialized countries after the First World War wasn't just because of universal suffrage and the clamor for better services. It was also about debts racked up in wartime. Between the 1920s and 1980s, the demands of the welfare state, the social state, as Piketty calls it, and war-related debt kept progressive taxes high. Progressive meaning that the poorest paid little, the middle classes paid a significant amount, and the richest paid a lot. Before the First World War, taxes in Europe and North America made up less than 10% of national income, not enough to pay for much more than pensions for the very old, an army, a fleet, and a diplomatic service. When the war ended, they increased three- or fourfold, Tax rates on the rich were higher in Britain than in continental Europe, and highest of all in the United States. The line, there's one for you, 19 for me, in George Harrison's song, Taxman, released by the Beatles in 1966, referred to the 95% tax rate paid by the very richest fraction of the British population, which included, to his surprise and annoyance, George Harrison. (laughs) At one point in Britain in the 1970s, the super-rich were liable for 98% tax on their investments. It was the U.S. that led the way, inspired, says Piketty, by a belief that the rich were to blame for the Depression and by a fear that if measures weren't taken to keep narrowing the gap between the richest and the poorest, America would become a class-bound society of aristocrats and peasants, like the old Europe from which the new world had always sought to differentiate itself. At one point during the Second World War, the richest Americans were paying a top rate of 94%. For almost 50 years in the middle of the 20th century, the era that Americans 
commonly consider their golden age of prosperity and power. The wealthiest among them, fewer than 1%, were paying federal income tax at an average rate of 81 cents on the dollar. If the past were a guide, the wealthier part of British society would be paying much more in tax now than it does. Income taxes are lower than they were in mid-century, much lower for the well-off. And yet, we've been through a damaging financial crisis that, as Martin Wolf of the Financial Times puts it, hurt the British and American public finances as much as a world war. Even critics of the present government's economic course agree Britain has to make inroads into debt in the longer term. Rather than, as in the past, repairing the damage by some combination of tax increases and public spending cuts, and Keynesian economists maintain that cuts are more harmful than tax rises, we are being prescribed cuts, cuts, cuts. In Britain, there are two mainstream political narratives about what has happened in the last 15 years. The first, more electorally successful, put about by the Conservatives, is that the Labour government went on a reckless public spending spree in the years running up to the crash of 2008, leaving Britain dangerously deep in government debt in the same manner as Greece. This narrative, the austerity narrative, tells how, as a consequence, Britain, like a household with too big a mortgage, must cut its spending deeply and sell off its remaining national possessions in order to begin returning what it owes and pay its way in the world. But because, as I've described, the Conservatives also promote the medieval Robin Hood-era model of taxation, that taxes are first stolen from hard-working people and then wasted, they seek rather to eliminate taxes than to increase them, hence cuts and the consequent shrinking of the state. The second narrative, favoured by the Conservatives' Labour opponents, often goes by the name anti-austerity. In this account, Osborne's Labour predecessor, Gordon Brown, didn't borrow or spend excessively at all. The British economy faltered in 2008, not because of borrowing and spending by the state, but because of borrowing and lending by a handful of bloated, arrogant British banks. A country with its own currency isn't like a household, this story runs. It can't go bankrupt through excessive state spending. Britain's debts are easily manageable by historical standards. This narrative holds that the Conservatives' austerity programme has been spawned not by need, but by an ideological yearning to destroy, destroy the state and those it protects. According to this version, economic sense and historical experience demand that in the short term, when borrowing costs are low, Debt should be increased to stimulate the economy, and taxes on the richest should go up. There are problems with each of these narratives. The problem with the austerity narrative is that it is false. Gordon Brown was not profligate with the public finances, and comparisons with Greece are wide of the mark. Britain's national debt was lower when the crash hit than when Labour took over from the Conservatives and its current account only just in the red. The British economy ran into trouble in 2007 for exactly the reasons the anti-austerity crowd say. 
what happened was that, all over the world, vast amounts of money that might have been spent was instead hoarded. Countries like China and Saudi Arabia, which exported more goods than they imported, hoarded foreign currency reserves against future rainy days. Large corporations hoarded cash instead of investing in better products. It became easier for individuals to legally suck wealth out of the firms they owned or ran into their personal hoards. The combined effect was a global savings glut. It didn't, of course, find expression in warehouses packed with dollar bills. All these hoarders sought to park their hoards in places where they would earn the most interest. Countries like Britain and the United States found themselves importing the products of resource giants like Saudi Arabia and Russia and of export giants like China and Germany twice over. First, as the products themselves, oil, gas, cars, phones, and second, as the profits made from selling them in the form of hoarded savings, looking for a return. The trouble was that with so much hoarded money looking for a comfy place to sit and grow fat, governments were offering meagre rates of interest. The industries of the old industrial world, places where the savings glut might once have been invested, were themselves more interested in saving than in spending on making themselves bigger and better. So American, British, Irish, Spanish, Icelandic banks found another way to help the hoarders. They parked their money in private loans, first and foremost in residential mortgages. Through slate of hand and the use of impenetrable mumbo-jumbo, the financial industry shuffled safe and risky loans together in huge interest-paying packets that promised the holders they were as safe as if the whole bundle was safe, yet paid as much interest as if the whole bundle were risky. In an incredibly short space of time, the banks swelled to grotesque size, then popped. The debt and deficit Gordon Brown bequeathed on leaving office then was not the result of crazy public spending before the financial crisis, but of spending during the crisis to repair the mess the financial industry made, and spending afterwards to prevent demand in the economy collapsing in the way it did during the Depression. This rescue effort was successful. The austerity econ economics of his successor, Osborne, by comparison, resulted in three years of unnecessary economic stagnation. This policy is still being pursued, leaving no doubt the Chancellor's aim, like that of Republicans in the United States, is to shrink the state. The austerity narrative is based on a lie, and yet it has been a popular enough lie for the people who tell it to have been elected to run the country. The anti-austerity camp believes it would have made a big difference in the 2015 election if Labour had made more effort to defend its record and expose the silliness of accusations that Gordon Brown was a spendthrift with a public purse. Perhaps... But not everyone makes a clear distinction between the Gordon Brown who managed the Treasury carefully, which he did, and the Gordon Brown who did not act to stop the banks pursuing the demented expansion of their balance sheets, which he also did.
When in 2007, Northern Rock had to be rescued by the Labour government, after it suffered the first bank run in Britain since the 19th century, it turned out the bank's management had bundled together much of its future income stream from people making monthly mortgage repayments and used it as collateral to borrow £49 billion from around the world, with which it then created more mortgages. It did this via a so-called charitable trust called Granite, based in the offshore tax haven of Jersey, that used as its nominal charity a tiny organisation from the northeast of England helping sufferers from Down syndrome. Northern Rock never bothered to tell the charity its name was being exploited in this way. When the trust was set up, it didn't occur to the bank or the regulators that there was any problem with what they were doing. Why would it? There were pages on the Treasury's own website explaining how it should be done. Labour can't pretend it didn't know or shouldn't have known what was going on. In the beginning, New Labour made a decision to trust Britain's wizards of high finance. Less, I suspect, because they thought them trustworthy than because they feared the alternative would make them unelectable. The alternative being to have imposed, back in the 2000s, a completely different kind of austerity, one that would not only have reigned in the banks, but as a consequence made it harder for ordinary voters, I almost wrote hard-working people, to get mortgages and the other myriad forms of credit to which we've become accustomed. Rather than cuts to public spending, there would have been cuts to private spending. Had it even suggested this, Labour would have been accused of planning to strangle the economy, choke growth, kill jobs. Now Labour is redesigning its ideas. The divide within the movement between Corbyn and the Blairites has its echo in the divide on the liberal left in the United States between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Might not, should not, anti-austerity actually be austerity for the rich rather than for the poor? Might not the answer to public spending cuts be private spending cuts? That is, tax increases for the well-off. The arrival of Thomas Piketty's book promised much to those in Europe, North America and Australasia who don't accept the market is the answer to all problems and who value the institutionalization of the Robin Hood principle in the workings of the social state. The book's main conclusion was devastating to the populist discourse of the modern right. Drawing from a deep well of data, Piketty found that for almost all recorded history, those who are rich enough to be sitting on a pile of cash and assets will get richer just from the returns on their capital at a faster rate than the economy can grow as a whole. In other words, if you don't start with capital, you can never close the gap with the rich, no matter how hard you work. Whereas if you do start with capital, you'll get richer and richer whether you work or not. Over time, this leads to greater and greater inequality. Piketty's work came as a shock because he showed the middle of the 20th century when the average person could and did become better off faster than those who lived off the return on their capital was not some new normal, as many thought, but an aberration, and that since then we've reverted to the mean. The detail of Piketty's work is less palatable 
for a left liberal movement trying to operate on a single country level. The subtlety of his position is that he separates the issue of inequality from the practicalities of trying to run a modern state. For Piketty, taxing the mega-rich isn't a means to plug holes in a country's annual budget, but a means to prevent the extreme concentration of wealth in a very few hands, or, as he puts it, the fiscal secession of the wealthiest citizens. A high marginal tax rate on extremely large incomes isn't a bad thing, he argues, but brings almost nothing into the state's coffers. Piketty writes with uncommon urgency about tax, calling it perhaps the most important of all political issues. Without taxes, he says, society has no common destiny and collective action is impossible. And yet, in terms of everyday national policies and tax and spend, his position is centrist. The state, he maintains, has never played a bigger role in people's lives than it does today. And while there isn't much support for shrinking it, nor is there much support for making it larger. Piketty agrees with this. He says this might jeopardize private commerce, which would be bad. Here's what he says. To be sure, there are objectively growing needs in the education and health spheres, which may well justify slight tax increases in the future. But the citizens of wealthy countries also have a legitimate need for enough income to purchase all sorts of goods and services produced by the private sector. It's easy to be distracted from the moderation of Piketty's thoughts on what individual countries should do by the extreme radicalism of his solution to the problem of inequality, a progressive global tax on wealth. He even comes up with suggested numbers from 0.1% on fortunes of a million euros to as much as 10% a year on billionaires. But as he admits, a truly global tax on capital is a utopian ideal. In other words, it's not going to happen. Piketty hasn't so much crunched the numbers on Britain as the US, has ground them to a fine powder, but it seems worth remembering he's writing from the perspective of France, where the state is so much more entrenched than on this side of the channel. Piketty's confidence that there is little appetite to shrink the role of the state in the economy doesn't seem so plausible here. At one point, he talks about the future consequences of rampant global inequality. Individualism and selfishness would flourish, he writes. Since the system as a whole would be unjust, why continue to pay for others? In describing an oligarchic global future, Piketty seems to describe Britain and other Anglophone countries today. Could this be the reason so many Britons appear prepared to accept the upside-down notion that the poor are in some way the idle rich? Not because they're callous, but because the actual rich are so far out of sight, so powerful and untouchable, that they no longer seem to belong to the same world as the rest of us. How like the Middle Ages, if it were so. That's the paradox of the new rights evocation of a neo-medieval Britain, where the hard-working majority is oppressed by a welfare-mad government, busy lining the pockets of the idle poor. Behind this twisted rhetoric, a modern version of the medieval world has been constructed, one where the real poor are taxed more heavily than the rich. 
where most of those who are not rich are burdened by an onerous roster of fees and monopolies leveled by, levied by remote, unaccountable private landlords, and where many of us can count on living out our lives shackled to an endless chain of private debt. Since the Thatcher Revolution in 1979, British governments have boasted of how they've lowered taxes. And they have, except for one section of society, the poorest 20%. In 1977, the least well-off fifth of households paid 30% of their gross income in direct taxes, like income tax, and indirect taxes, like VAT. In 2014, the tax take from this poorest group had gone up to 37.8%, while the taxes paid by the richest had gone down to less than 35%. And this greatly understates the degree to which the top 1% of society have had their tax bill cut. That's still only one part of the story. Piketty's view of what constitutes the social state is quite cautious. He writes, Modern redistribution does not consist in transferring income from the rich to the poor, at least not in so explicit a way. It consists rather in financing public services and replacement incomes that are more or less equal for everyone, especially in the areas of health, education, and pensions. To me, that doesn't go far enough in defining what makes up the modern social state. Health, education, and social security make up the lion's share of public spending, but they're intimately linked to a wider set of networks that include energy, water, and transport, and some would argue should include housing. What these networks have in common is that society has decided they're essential and therefore should be universal. That is, we think everyone should have access to them all the time. The significance of this is that, on the one hand, society takes on itself the obligation to give its poorest members access to these networks, which they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. And, on the other, payment to use these networks, if it isn't funded out of general taxation, becomes in itself a tax, particularly when that network is a monopoly. In Britain, many of the universal networks, such as electricity and water, have been privatised twice in many cases, once to put them on the stock market, once to put them into the hands of foreign owners. Bills have increased faster than inflation and take little account of people's ability to pay. It is the poorest, then, who, as well as paying the heaviest combination of indirect and direct taxation, bear the brunt of such hybrid public-private taxes as the water tax and the electricity tax. Other universal networks, such as health and education, have not been privatised, but have been through another process that makes them ripe for the introduction of flat fees to use them in future. The process really got going under Labour, and it is a sign of the liberal left's failure to recognise the nature of what it has done, that there isn't a name for it. One word to describe the process might be autonomisation. The process by which state-run bodies continue to be funded by the state but are run autonomously on a non-profit basis. So state secondary schools become academies, NH hospitals become NHS foundation trusts, and council estates are transferred to housing associations. The British state is in a condition 
of rolling abdication, leaving behind a partly privatized, partly autonomized set of universal networks, increasingly run by absentee landlords in the form of global companies and foreign corporate investors, that is disproportionately funded by the poorest payers of taxes, fees and duties, many of whom are also deep in debt. There is a cynical view which says that as long as the majority of the population feel they're doing all right, a democratically elected government is safe to squeeze the poor and pamper the rich. But cynicism is a risky thing to rely on when a government is simultaneously cutting spending and shedding control of the universal networks on which its entire population relies. As Hobsbawm writes in Bandits, concentration of power in the modern territorial state is what eventually eliminated rural banditry, endemic or epidemic. At the end of the 20th century, it looks as though this situation might be coming to an end, and the consequences of this regression of state power cannot yet be foreseen. We're a long way from the return of the literal outlaw to Nottinghamshire. Nottinghamshire. But we need to remember the insight given our ancestors when they saw through the illusion of the Robin Hood myth, when they saw the strong box of silver coins wasn't just money stolen from each of them individually, but power robbed from them collectively, and that they needed to wield that power collectively as much more than they needed their money back. For sure, freedom to choose is a grand thing, and the market will try to help. With a bit of money in the bank, a middle-class family might choose to send their child to a private school provided by the market. But that same family cannot choose by itself to build and maintain a universal education network, and the market will not provide it. With money, you can choose to buy a car, and the market will provide. But you cannot choose all by yourself to build and maintain a universal road network, and the market will not provide it. To make and keep the universal networks requires the authority of the state, that authority which has been so absent lately. We shall not be noble robbers. Together, we can be our own king. Thank you. What I'm hoping is that somebody is going to put their hand up and say, Mr. Mick, I'm a billionaire, and... No? Nobody here? Um, I'm a planner working in uh, local government for years and years, and I've been fed up with affordable housing being the way that we have to provide social housing nowadays. Um, It's sort of hoping for crumbs on the rich man's table, in a way. And progressive governments, or successive governments, rather, have adhere to the system. They haven't come up with an alternative. The argument's been that the great housing estates of the 60s and 70s were not places that you wanted to bring up children. Now we're not providing homes for our kids in future in any shape or form. And we're condemning the sort of young people in front of us in the audience today to no home of their own to look forward to in future. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Are we changing to a European housing system by the government's sort of way of mismanaging the housing economy. I just value your views on that. 
Well, the housing uh, situation is, is the, the central problem facing the, the country today, um, and none of the so-called solutions that the current government is coming up with seem likely to make things better. On the contrary, uh, I mean, the interesting thing that strikes me about the housing story in the context of austerity is one of the theories um, attached to uh, modern uh, right-wing economic thinking is this idea of, of crowding in and crowding out. Um, the idea that if you uh, if the public, uh, if, if the, the government spends money uh, on something, then it means that the private sector won't. But conversely, if the public sector withdraws from something, then the private sector, the market, will rush in and fill that need. Uh, and the interesting thing about that in housing is that we have actually been carrying out this experiment for um, 40 years now to see whether that's true. And the results are in. It, it really is not. Um, because the, the government not only um, started selling off council houses and has continued to do so ever since in, in the early 1980s, but um, it, it prevented uh, the councils from, from replacing them. Uh, and, yes, I, I'm sure a lot of them generally expected that uh, the market, there was a demand for houses, the, the market would, would build houses, surely. Uh, well, it just did not happen, and it has continued to not happen ever since, with the result that we now have a, a massive deficit of, uh, of housing, with the results that we all know about, um, certainly in the, in the south of the country. Uh, and the claims that you hear sometimes from the government or the house builders that this is to do with planning restrictions, well, that's, that's hardly consistent with the vast number of uh, fields uh, and brownfield sites with planning permission that the, the, house, build holders, the house builders have on their books. Uh, I mean, the reality is that they ceased to actually become um, house builders and, and became speculators in land, which is what they remain. Uh, and uh, there is, I mean, I, I, <laughs> this, this talk could have gone in many directions, and, and I, I did uh, want to talk a little bit about housing because it is... Uh, very much a possibility, um, a very controversial and hard-to-sell political possibility for any future government, but it's certainly a possibility that you could have a kind of stealth wealth tax simply by building more houses. Uh, eventually, if the government stepped in to replace the, uh, the, missing, the missing square footage, um, then eventually house prices would begin to stabilise and eventually they would begin to fall. And uh, yes, some people would be very unhappy about that. And, and since house prices are pretty much the current government's solution to all problems, um, they, they, they would be problematic. But it, it would be a way, a very direct way, that is not necessarily open to all the countries. Piketty, for example, writes about that in which um, Britain could address inequalities simply by, by uh, evening the spread of, of house prices. Thank you very much for a very thoughtful and thought-provoking lecture. Your narrative is very compelling. Why do you think it is that it sort of struggles to get any kind of general traction in the country as a whole? Uh, I mean, other things you could look at are this very strong work that shows that the wider the gap between the top earning and the medium income, the worse the population's health is but you'll struggle to see those, uh, that data anywhere. And uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I can't I, see any change in prospect. I'm not blaming you for this. I, I'm just, thanks, uh, I would value exactly your insights into why that's so. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I, I did touch upon some of these, some of these issues and, and the, the idea that perhaps it's all working in, the, in, in, in favour of the, of the current narrative in the sense that um, the rich have done so well that people um, just 
have lost sight of them and they, and they turn against um, whoever they can whoever they can sort of hate really uh, there was that wonderful phrase in the uh, in the guardian a couple of days ago uh, david cameron being the master of trickle down hate uh, it's uh, very very seems very apt and and relevant to what what i've been saying um, i um I mean, one of the things you might say in the context of talking about Robin Hood, um, which, of course, you know, it's, it's not an explicit thing, it's all implicit, um, is well, where is the implicit counter-narrative? Where, where is the myth um, that does make sense? Because I've, I've explained that really Robin Hood doesn't make a great deal of sense in the, in the, in the modern left context. Uh, I mean, people talk about how um, the 19th and early 20th century socialists um, would use um, Christianity, the story of Jesus, um, as an alternative story. But um, I'm not really sure how well that works. I mean, he was a great turner of the other cheek, and, and an awful lot of, uh, a vast amount of terrible things have been justified um, in the financial world simply by the use of the formula, render unto Caesar those things which are Caesar's. Um, I, I, I feel that, um, that some other set of, of ideas is, is necessary. I mean, it, it is a complicated one because, of course, um, as you will see, if you look at the party speeches and, and the interviews, uh, certainly the left is not immune to using the expression hardworking people itself. Um, but I, I feel that there's an incoherence to that. Uh, I think it really has to start... Uh, at a very grassroots level. Yes, there have to be sort of ideas and thinkers putting out these ideas, but people have to start talking about them somehow. Uh, it has to be done by, by party branches or, or by, um, by sort of through, through the internet. Um, that there has to be a redefinition, a better understanding of the actual state of the country now rather than um, a, a refighting of battles from the 1980s or a... Um, or, or a regret for some um, mythical paradise from, from some decade gone by. There has to be a, uh, a look at this, this strange landscape, and somebody has to come up with a better word than um, autonomize for what is happening with the, uh, with the schools and the hospitals, the way that they're, they're being gradually whittled away uh, and, and pushed towards a more, a more commercial future, and, of course, the universities, which I, uh, which I didn't get onto. Um, so I really think it, it sounds like quite a, um, a small and lame thing to say, but uh, really things like vocabulary and uh, clear definitions of the state we are actually in that work that you can talk to people on the doorstep about, that, that people will start talking about in the pub in the way that now they're, they're um, moaning about immigrants. Hi, yes. Um, James, I just had a question. Obviously, um, on the subject of taxation, mm. uh, the big story that's been in recent days is the whole issue of Google and, and, and the, 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 the supposed rate of tax or otherwise that they've paid. And I, ironically enough, apparently Rupert Murdoch even tweeted about this. Um, yeah, he's not, I, he's not interested at all in, uh, you know, he hasn't got a personal interest in that at all. Has he? <laughs> exactly. It's a casual observer yeah. for the no. sidelines. Um, so I wondered how, 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 how does that fit into this, the very compelling um, argument you put forward about the inversion of, of this sort of Robin Hood myth? Well, it's, it's very much a part of it. Um, I mean, uh, clearly the, the reason that um, Piketty, who I think is, is a, a tremendously important writer who everyone should read, uh, the reason that he talks about a global tax in cap on capital is because he just doesn't feel that 
addressing inequality through the tax system really works anymore uh, on a national level. Uh, he um, is, I think, quite focused on, on individuals, but it also affects, uh, affects companies. Um, I mean, there is one very, very specific thing which can be done in this country. Uh, it's actually quite a, a radical step, um, and uh, it can be done, and, and it, it, it's not something that's going to hit people in their pockets, um, although there will be claims it is, and that is to, um, to stop uh, tax relief on, on interest payments. I mean, it sounds like an incredibly obscure and boring technical detail, but actually this is the way that so many privatizations have been carried out, uh, that a, a company will borrow money um, to buy uh, an electricity company or a water company, and they will then um, pay um, through some financial shenanigans, moving the money around, moving the debt around. They will then um, have to pay some other company that they own so much money to pay back the debt that they end up not paying any tax. So there, are, there is that one very, very significant thing that can be done in this country to, to change the ownership structure, which might in future make it easier for, um, for governments which choose to do so to, re, to take public control of uh, some of these utilities again. But uh, until you have a coordinated international effort to crack down on these tax havens, and when I say a coordinated international effort. It, it does very much depend on, on the United States and in particular in Britain. Um, London is really the center of world money laundering um, and um, so many uh, tax havens are basically British dependencies. Um, and yes, we, we keep hearing about how these places are being cleaned up. They're becoming more transparent. There are conferences, there are talks. Um, but uh, it's, it's really uh, feeble uh, and, uh, and, and uh, pathetic attempts to, to do something which is, should be fairly straightforward. So, yeah, I think before you get to um, Piketty's utopian global tax on capital, there is much that can be done. Uh, but it is difficult for one country to do it by themselves. Uh, just to raise your previous, your, previous, your previous question, um, your previous answer, sorry, if you take the, um, the information from the High Pay Centre about a week ago, they hit the press, or some of the press, um, said if you take out not the 1%, but the top 10% of income earners, the average uh, salary in the UK is about £13,000 a year. That's quite a good uh, 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 stat to work with, with uh, people in the pub, isn't it? The average salary in the UK is £13,000 a year, when you take out the top 10%. Oh, Really? Not the one percent, well, the top ten percent. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I see what you mean. I, I don't know about that. Uh, I mean, I, I, I feel the uh, the useful number to go with is not the average salary, but the the median mm -hmm. salary. Mm -hmm. um, but usually, it's it's because it's distorted by the top earners. Yes, yes. So it's interesting. That is an interesting figure. I hadn't heard that before. But I would need to look a bit more of it before I commented. I mean, the trouble is, people in the pub they know how much they earn. <laughs> so. Uh, an American friend said to us once, some time ago, um, if you have a free NHS, free at the point of delivery, it might make more sense if you had free housing and free food, because otherwise, um, you know, you can, people get sick and you're going to be spending a lot more on the NHS. But when you, I mean, what's your... 
view. I thought it free everything. An interesting <laughs> <thing to> say. <laughs> well, if, I mean, it's never free. Um, it's no, it, it's uh, it's always good in these conversations to remember that when you're talking about money, you're really talking about resources and power. Um, and uh, it was interesting with housing again because um, what what happened in the seventies was that. Um, they almost built a house for everyone. It really got to that point. And many of those houses were really bad, uh, really badly built, really badly designed, really ugly, uh, so much wrong with them. But I feel it was a little bit like when they build an aircraft carrier. It's this incredibly complicated piece of machinery, and it doesn't work straight away. You can't just put it in the water and it, and it sails away. You have to spend years uh, working on it, taking bits out. Sometimes the engine has to be replaced. Um, it's a very complicated machine. Uh, and I feel that... Um, you know, it would have been nice to, nice to know what would have happened in an alternative Britain if they said, well, OK, we've got this now. We've got this universal housing network. Some people live in private houses. Some people live in public housing. But there's a house for everyone. Um, now let's work on it and try and, and make it better. Um, now, in reality, I, I don't want to be too starry-eyed about this. I don't think the, the institutions were really capable of that. Um, but uh, it was a shame that they moved so quickly to, to destruction. The question of food, it's, a, it's an interesting one, um, of, if you haven't got any, obviously. Um, there is no universal food network, but then um, we don't want people to be starving. Uh, there's a universal money network. Uh, supposedly there is a, a universal safety net and that. So it's not free food, but um, the idea is, and this is something which is now being tested, and we don't really know what the significance is, is the, of the huge uptake of food banks, but it doesn't sound good. Uh, this idea is now being tested, and, and with this steadily increasing uh, habit uh, of uh, targets for uh, the benefits office, uh, the number of people that, whose benefits they have to stop, and they have targets for uh, the number of people they have to, I think, sanction is the, is the expression. Uh, or you haven't sanctioned enough people this week. And sanctioning means you cut off their benefits. They do not have any money. They still have their rent paid, but that's it. Uh, well, that sounds like starvation. It's, to me, it sounds like shutting down the Universal Food Network. Um, so, um, yeah, we're... we're uh, I think the idea might once have been that there would be exactly the things that your American friend talked about, uh, an NHS, a housing network, and a food network. Um, but um, the housing network's long gone, and the food one is uh, tottering. So I was just going to ask, if we do nothing, if it all continues on the way that it is at this moment and nothing changes, how do you see that going forward longer term? I mean, uh, 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 the serfs well, were rescued by the plague, and <laughs> then the French Revolution um, did sort of turn things up. But. We, well, maybe we'll be rescued by the plague too. Um, but, uh, I mean, doing nothing in a dynamic situation uh, means a huge amount of change. Uh, and we certainly have a dynamic situation. Uh, I've as you know, I've written quite a lot about privatization in the past, and, and one of the things that I realized was that people, and this includes the, um, I, th I think, um, labor when they came into power, which is one of the reasons um, they made so many mistakes. People think of these things as events. You've privatized this, that's it. It's over. But that's not the case. It's a, it's a continuous arc of, of occurrences. 
um, which, which is going on to this moment. Um, and uh, the, the trajectory, the present trajectory, the, sort of the dynamic change which is uh, currently taking place, I do not feel is, is healthy. Um, I feel you are putting more and more burdens on the, the poor part of society. You're putting very, very heavy burdens on, on the middle classes. Uh, and you're, you're setting people against each other. And uh, the, whether it's, um, it's uh, an emotional and a moral sense that the rich have too much money, or whether it's, as I suspect, actually reached the point where the power that they wield is actually distorting um, our lives. Uh, if you leave things as they are at the moment without making any changes, and this is Piketty's point, then that's, that is going to get worse. Uh, you, have, you will have a financial secession. You will have, even more than you do now, uh, an oligarchy of people who are not simply sitting on their islands counting their money, but through their control uh, of uh, vast sums of money, uh, distorting the lives of, of everyone and, and exercising power on, on, on lives far from their own. Thank you very much. Um, just uh, a couple of comments on some of the predicaments faced in Scotland, because there there is a different narrative going on. And you may recall with the referendum, uh, 95% of those able to vote actually registered to vote and 85% actually did vote, which shows a different, I think, a different engagement with politics. Now, as well as that, the, there are no fees in the universities, as, as you know. We don't have um, NHS trusts. We have no academies. And this is coming, interestingly enough, not from the traditional left, because there is only one Labour MP um, down from... Um, Scotland. However, some of the problems that uh, I think the, the tactics of uh, George Osborne are interesting mm. because the, this fiscal settlement, which I think is dreadful for Scotland, is one which means if Scotland is to, uh, if there is to be any more public spending, it has to come from a Scottish rate of income tax, a generalised one. So it shows some of the difficulties of a small nation. Mm trying to combat what's going on there. But it is, I think the referendum has shown that it is possible to get a different narrative, and it's one that should fill people with hope, I would, I would suggest. Yep, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, it, it, does show what's, it does show what's possible, even though they're lost. Um, and, um, but also, you're right to, to highlight the fact that Scotland has gone a different way. Uh, it hasn't gone down these, um, these so much, there's not so much privatization and there's not so much autonomization either. Uh, and I think what I would say is that in a few years' time, it's going to be very interesting to, to go to Scotland and have a hard look and say, well, what actually, how is this working? Um, I suspect you will see different problems. There will be problems of different problems. Uh, and um, also, personally, I feel it would have been very, very tough, very tough for Scotland if they had voted yes. Um, I, that, I think that that might have been a that might have been a good thing. That there was a chance to be to be very very noble, <laughs> uh, and and perhaps to endure a period of um, private austerity, uh, and to see how that might work. 
and I suppose that potential still exists if by raising that tax rate and seeing how the Scots react to a higher tax rate than the English have. Um, yeah, I really look forward to uh, seeing how that goes down. What about Europe? You have mentioned that at all. Um, that could, either, if the referendum went either way, it could trigger big changes. I think if referendum is to, to stay, it's well, I mean, quite I, a chance that there could be um, big changes in Europe itself. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, the, the lecture wasn't really about that. And, and in fact, the next piece I write, the next book one piece I write for the LRB will probably be about, about Europe. Um, but um, I would just say that um, in defense of Piketty, uh, he does acknowledge that his global tax on capital is a utopian idea, but he, uh, he does say um, that the only chance of creating anything like it is in large countries or in groups of small countries. Uh, so it's perfectly possible and practical for Europe as a whole to make a start, uh, and, uh, and that it would be the wrong thing for Britain to do. To I mean, he doesn't talk about Britain specifically, but he talks about small countries breaking away. Um, I, I think this is, um, this is the thing about Europe, which a lot of people, a lot of politicians, seem to have trouble getting their head around. It is a hybrid project. It is a project which, yes, it's, it's a free market capitalist um, free-for-all, um, but it is also a, a social state. Uh, and as, in, as with, with uh, our country, where you have a very large welfare state, but you also have a, um, a government which doesn't really like it and is trying to dismantle it, um, you have these two things in tension. It doesn't, intention doesn't mean that um, there's going to be an absolute one way or the other. Uh, and uh, those people on the left, I think, who are concerned about you or need to remember look beyond um, TIPP and the um, and the uh, the open markets and the uh, the more uh, fervently pro-capitalist pro-globalist side of Europe uh, and look at its, at its social side and the possibilities it might have to protect Britain against the um, extremes of um, low-wage competition, for example, from the rest of the world. Hi. Um, I was just thinking about the point that the gentleman made earlier about why does the anti-austerity narrative not get more traction. Mm. And um, part of the Robin Hood story for me, I don't know where I got this from, um, <laughs> is that Richard the Lionheart spent a lot of money on the Crusades, and that was partly why people had to pay such high taxes and Robin Hood was alleviating that strain on their resources. And um, w when, you, when you trust the state to spend your money, um, you're also giving them the ability to spend money on things like war and other things that you might not want them to spend money on. So maybe you would rather have control or, or, or think that you have control over more of your own money that you've earned and that you can see in your bank account 
um, than cede control to a state that you don't necessarily trust um, and that's been shown to be uh, incompetent in the past. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and um, you're, you're absolutely right to point out that um, the idea of, of the, the tax-collecting state as a, a remote and out-of-control monster is certainly not a uniquely right-wing idea. Um, and, um, and, it's, uh, and, of course, this is one of the, the ironies of, uh, of the, the rights in the United States in particular, that they're all in favour of, of military spending. Um, and uh, uh, the... Um, yeah, uh, it, it's... There is something of the libertarian, you might say, about, um, about Robin Hood. I mean, it's interesting that they are, as I said, you, you constructed your own Robin Hood from the bits that you um, half remember. Um, and uh, and that's, a, that's a you know perfectly valid myth, because everyone can, everyone can do it. Uh, and it, it comes down to... What, whether you are going to trust the state and, and the mechanisms that exist uh, when you, as I said, take over the sheriff of Nottingham's office. Um, it, it is a, a very, very difficult moment. I mean, I, I would recommend reading Hobsbawm's book on bandits because he, he talks very much about the, um, the, the ambiguous position of the bandit because by his very nature... He comes out of the out of the peasantry, out of the people, but uh, also by his very nature, he is constantly interacting with the forces of of power and authority. Uh, and if he is too successful, or if he is very successful, uh, he may find himself becoming a part of that power structure and losing touch with um, with the uh, with his roots. Uh, and and that's, that is a, a narrative that is continually being uh, heard in, in politics. Uh, the, the person who went from the, the little town to, to Washington or Westminster and, uh, and forgot about the, the people he left behind. Uh, but as long as you have a state, there's always going to be that problem. Um, you can take a, a sort of left-wing libertarian view um, we're not going to pay any taxes because they're going to be paid, used to pay for wars. Um, fair enough. Um, I, yeah, I, I, it depends what, how bad the wars are and how much military spending is. Um, I'm, I'm not a pacifist myself, but I suppose if I was, then not paying taxes would be very, a very logical step to take. Thanks. Thank you. On that peaceful note. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. For our best subscription offers, visit lrb.me forward slash pod.